Good morning. We are going to continue in John chapter 9, looking at verses 13 through 23. As you know, the blind man has had this miraculous healing, and then he starts facing opposition to his healing. It's almost perplexing in a way, isn't it? That this miracle could become so contentious. What? How? This doesn't make any sense. But as we'll see, as I pointed out last week, the thematic verse for all of chapter 9 is verse 39, where Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And now, after the blind man has been healed, we start getting into the part of the blind who can't see. So let's read verses 13 through 23. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind and how does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these words surrounding this controversy of this man's miraculous healing and receiving his sight. More amazingly, Lord, thank you for these words that show who sees with spiritual eyes and who does not see with the blind spiritual eyes. Lord, we ask and pray that as we look into these words, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we would see your glory, your majesty, your beauty, and we would see what you are trying to tell us this morning about you, about ourselves, and about where you're calling us. And we ask it, Father, believing that you will use your spirit to open our eyes. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So the, kind of the first question here is this idea of how Jesus is working. Right, Because this is a big contention for these Pharisees. This guy is working on the Sabbath. He's out there cutting the grass on Sunday afternoon. 
course, it's not really Sunday, it's Saturday, but that's a different story for a different time. But the big thing is that a miracle requires a commission and human affirmation for it to be legitimate. Okay, of course, we all see the foolishness in such a statement. Yet, that is the way human religion works. Just as in Jesus' day, even today, when there's a miracle, there has to be a religious commission that meets to legitimize the miracle. In essence, what the religious world says is it's not a miracle until we say it is. Okay, think about that for a second. God works a miracle. It's a miracle. But you say it's not until you declare it one? Like, who made you judge over God's miracles? How did that, how did that work? When did that happen? Who, what? When? How, and how do you know that it was a miracle? Right? Epistemology. How do you know what you know? How do you know that? How do you determine that? So in one sense, we are grateful for these kind of commissions, right? Because they legitimize in the sense that there's no hoax taking place, that there wasn't some fakery going on. And that at the end of the day, this was a supernatural act that can't be explained by science or natural laws, right? That's the thing about supernatural means it's occurring outside of the laws of nature. Newton's law of physics will not explain Jesus healing a blind man. The law of thermodynamics will not explain Jesus healing the blind man. The explanation of him healing the blind man lies outside of the theory of Newton's law of gravity, of thermodynamics, all the things that we can know by natural law and observation. Jesus does the works of the Father, whether it fits the religious requirements or not. This is all kind of seems self-evident, right? I mean... Jesus is doing what he does and he doesn't really care whether they like it or not because he's not interested in pleasing them. He's interested in pleasing the Father. As we have already seen in the Gospel of John earlier, Jesus just doesn't have any regard for the Sabbath rule. Now that doesn't mean he breaks the Sabbath commandment from the Ten Commandments. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means... He doesn't pay any attention to their add-ons to the Sabbath commandment that say you can't walk more than three miles, you can't make bread, you can't grind the wheat to make flour, you can't knead the dough to make wheat, to make the bread. They got this long list of knots, of can'ts. Long list of can'ts. You can't do this on the Sabbath. Jesus just, just hand waves it. And does his miracles anyway. And oh, the irony's here. I mean, they're just, it, it, if it wasn't so serious, it would truly be comical. These ironies. Look, the first one. Why, why would anyone think it is wrong for Jesus to do physical healing on the Sabbath? Where did, where did that come from? I mean, we had, 
Isn't God glorified in this? The man is miraculously healed. Isn't God glorified? Isn't that the purpose of the Sabbath? To glorify God? And didn't people praise God with more enthusiasm and excitement than they would have if he hadn't been healed on the Sabbath? I mean, this whole idea is ludicrous from every angle you look at it. It is just ludicrous that he shouldn't heal someone physically on the Sabbath. Oh, and the ironies get even more bizarre, right? Jesus spitting into a small palmful of dirt and then applying it to the man's eyes. How does that work? I mean, really, seriously, you pick up a small, not even a handful, not even a fistful, just a smell, just a little bit in the palm of your hand. Spit on it, make it into a little bit of mud, apply it onto the guy's eyes, tell him to go wash. How does that work? By, I mean, literally, the Pharisees washed more dirt off their feet than Jesus had in his hand. Yet no one complains about foot washing on the Sabbath. Of course, I have to agree with that one. But if you're going to take your shoes off, let's wash your feet. This is one that really gets me. Because, I mean, I understand. Look, the people had to know. They could, I mean, they had to see the silliness of this accusation. That making this little bit of mud and putting it on his eyes is work. Come on. These religious elites probably had more dirt in their beard than Jesus had in his hand. But, of course... The real issue isn't that Jesus made mud and put it on the guy's eyes. Their real problem is that he opened the blind man's eyes and that causes trouble for them every time they try to accuse him of being a godless, sinning, Samaritan, Gentile lover. And they rightly respond How can a man who is a sinner open the eyes of someone born blind? And if we're trying to give the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt and think they're saying that walking to the pool of Shalom was work, the distance from the temple gate to the pool of Shalom was well within the Sabbath limit of walking on the Sabbath. There is absolutely nothing here that quantifies as work for the Sabbath except the miraculous healing part. That's it. That's their real problem. Their issue is with the guy who can now see and Jesus made it happen. That's their real problem. As I mentioned back at the end of chapter 7, it talks about the division of the people at the end of chapter 7. And from that moment forward, Jesus is always dividing people. And here we are, we see it again. The Pharisees themselves within the Sanhedrin court are divided over Jesus. They know that an ungodly man could not heal someone who was born blind, but they would rather die than admit Jesus did a miracle. I mean, they are so obstinate, they would literally rather die than admit he did a miracle. I mean, you can almost hear their voices. That stinking Nazarene had to go heal a blind man right after claiming to be I am. Ugh. He just had to do it. Is there no end to this man's aggravating the fool out of us? Well, obviously not, because you still have plenty of fool left in you. (sighs) Hating Jesus will just make you crazy and dumb. 
I'm serious. I'm literally serious. Hating Jesus will make you crazy and dumb. I mean, look at how exasperated they are that Jesus did a miracle and how hard they are looking for a way to deny it. They even get so desperate, they ask an illiterate, poverty-stricken, blind his whole life up until just a few hours ago, man, who Jesus is. What do you say about him? I don't want the lunacy of this moment to escape us. The educated elites, the experts of the Mosaic law trying to decide who Jesus is, they ask the dumb blind guy who he is. Wasn't there anyone on the Sanhedrin that just like dropped their heads and covered their eyes realizing what the others were saying? You really didn't just turn and ask the dumb blind guy to be a judgment of the law of Moses, did you? You didn't just do that. Yes, they did. That's how dumb and crazy they got. They literally were so worked up into a frenzy that they just turned and asked him who Jesus was to make a judgment of the Mosaic law itself. One way hating Jesus made these Pharisees dumb and crazy was their obstinate drive to discredit Jesus' miracle. This is like, this is like beautiful. I just like, this is the best part of this whole story for me. Right? See there, up until that, when it first starts, right, all you have is some commotion among the people and some rumors of a healing. But because they formed their commission to investigate the miracle and had their grand inquiry, they only made the miracle more miraculous. They literally turned the miracle that Jesus did into something that no one can deny because of their inquiry. They actually shoot themselves in the foot by doing this. Now, they're in a real pickle. They've created a bigger problem for themselves by proving the miracle took place and can't be denied. So they've got to try something new. They have to try to a new, turn to a new tactic to try and discredit Jesus' miracle. So they're going to discredit this miracle by saying that they have the man's blindness from birth denied by his parents. But, oh, wait. These are the parents that know he's born blind. Well, this isn't a real calling of a witness. This is their intimidation and tyranny to get them to say it, that he wasn't born blind. See, they're intimidating the witnesses, this man's parents, in hopes of getting what they want for their testimony, that this man wasn't born blind. Jesus didn't really do a miracle. You can imagine the parents being caught between a rock and a hard place here. The Pharisees want to discredit the miracle, yet everyone will know that they are lying if they deny the man is their son or he was born blind. And so, they have to face some difficult questions. And this incident is also a precursor to chapter 10, where Jesus claims to be the good shepherd. But before he claims to be the good shepherd, John's illustrating in chapter 9 the false shepherds, these 
men are displaying their true color in contrast to the good shepherd in chapter 10. In fact, Ezekiel could have easily been prophesying against these men when he said in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 4, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Now, for the younger generation here among us, this question won't be as relevant to you as, in, and as it is to the rest of us. Did the man's parents throw him under the bus? I mean, this is one of those things like, you've got to be kidding me. You, you wouldn't do this. We sit here that you wouldn't do this to your child. How could you do this to your child? Throw them under the bus. So did they throw him under the bus? Um, as someone recently pointed out to me, no, they didn't throw him under the bus because they didn't have buses. Okay. All right. So for the historical accuracy, I will rephrase the question. Did the man's parents throw him under the ox cart? And this is an immensely important question because for us, because how could they do this to their child? I mean, what, what kind of people throw their child under the ox cart? My answer is simple. If it looks like someone got thrown under the ox cart and it sounds like someone got thrown under the ox cart, somebody got thrown under the ox cart. Say that three times fast, ox cart. There are three things, though, I do want you to grasp about the parents' dilemma. If they give credence to the miracle, they'll be thrown out of the synagogue. Look, that's no small thing, all right? This is big time problem if you get thrown out of the synagogue in that day living in Jerusalem. Their livelihood will be decimated because to be thrown out of the synagogue is to be made like a leper. And they're, it's, it's, like a cast, it's like being an outcast. Well, it is being an outcast, not just from the religious aspects of the temple worship in Jerusalem, but also within the community and the economic world, you're an outcast and they don't want to do business with you anymore. They could be thinking he can be thrown out of the synagogue and nothing changes for his or our livelihood. But if we are thrown out, all of us are destitute. Okay, but he's already on the street begging. So I'm not sure how that makes things any better for him. Secondly, as in our legal system, we have to acknowledge they did not actually witness the miracle. They can only testify in this legal proceeding to what they actually know and saw. Right? They know he's their child. They know he was born blind, but they didn't see Jesus healing. So they can't say what happened. Still, notwithstanding these attempts to give them the benefit of the doubt, they still failed in their parental responsibility by saying he is of age asking. And so they threw him under the ox cart. And now he has to deal with these Pharisees on his own. A guy who's been blind all of his life and just got his sight back a few hours ago, illiterate, poverty-stricken. No one has any respect for this guy. He's like the bottom of the social economic barrel in Jerusalem. And now he's got to stand in front of the mighty 
Pharisees who control everything and have all the power. That's what makes these next several verses. Verse 17 and the other parts going forward in this chapter so amazing and stunning. In verse 17 he says, He is a prophet. I intentionally saved this phrase for last because it's the most important phrase of these verses today. This man, in the face of strong intimidation tactics, boldly confesses what he knows of Christ. As I mentioned last week, his understanding of who Jesus is grows in a progression. He starts out, well, this man called Jesus healed me. Now he's a prophet. Next week we'll see where he's a, a godly man who listens, who God listens to him, which is greater than a prophet who just listens to God. And then he progresses to the end of the chapter and says, he is, you are my Lord. He's in the progression of understanding who Jesus is and he boldly confesses that Jesus is a prophet because that's how he knows him. It must have seemed both a shock to these Pharisees that this man did not cave to their intimidation as well as incense them that he would defy their expectations. Because by the time he's brought back in, everybody understands what's going on and what you're expected to say to the Pharisees. In amazement, this stands in stark contrast to chapter 5, where the lame man was healed and then tried to throw Jesus under the ox cart, as well as this man's parents, who lacked the courage to speak the truth. Look, this man's confession is imperfect. He acknowledges Jesus at this moment as a prophet. He still doesn't quite understand him as Lord and Savior. But look, while his confession was imperfect, it was bold nonetheless and serves as an inspiration for us today in the face of hostility to our Lord. Calvin encourages us this way. If this blind man did not quench his tiny spark of knowledge, we should endeavor that a frank and full confession should blaze forth from the full brightness which has shone in our hearts. In the fullness in our hearts of understanding who Jesus is as Lord and Savior, the Son of God, the Creator and Sustainer of all things, our own confession should blaze forth even more beautifully and powerfully than this man's in the moment of his intimidation. So you know what's coming next. So what? Thank you, Nava. So what? Appreciate your wonderful insights into ancient Jewish traditions and Sanhedrin practices, but so what? We've got to go do a backyard Bible club here in a few minutes. So what? Okay. Expect that Jesus will do something miraculous in a way you don't anticipate or fits the norms of human thinking. Look, the reality is, is even today when Jesus does a miracle, it's just not what you thought it was going to be. It's going to be something different. He makes a habit of busting conventional religious rules of what can be done and when. Secondly, and this is probably, well, I'm going in importance, order of importance. The second most important so what from this? If Jesus does a miracle in your life, 
Expect opposition and resistance. Don't be, look, just, just put it in your plan of action. Jesus does a miracle. I prepare for resistance and opposition. Naysayers and malcontents are going to attack the work of God and seek to discredit it now, just as they did that day in Jerusalem. If you doubt me on this, just ask some of the people in this room. And they will tell you of how the miracle God worked in their life and the naysayers and malcontents that tried to deny it. And here, I think, is maybe the most challenging of all the applications from this passage. When tempted to shy away from your confession of Jesus Christ, especially when intimidated by others, Stand firm and give an answer for the reason of the hope which you have in Christ Jesus. That was the admonition of Peter to us. Be prepared to give an answer for the reason to the hope which you have in Christ Jesus. Even in the face of intimidation. And I know, because I've heard from other teenagers, the intimidation at school when you try to speak the truth of Jesus. Stand firm and give an answer for the hope you have in Christ Jesus. And I will just say to the adults who think, well, I get a pass on this because I'm not in school. <laughs> That's right. There's, you got, you got some, some surprises coming to you if you think that. I was talking with some individuals yesterday about the status of our society. And my conclusion is that we're not going to stay where we are. Things are going to go in one of two directions. With the current resentment towards Jesus and the hostility we're starting to see towards Christianity and biblical truth. Either we're going to have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a tremendous revival, great awakening type experience that brings people back to the faith in Christ? Or we're going to go deeper into this resentment and hatred and we're actually going to need each other to survive it. And there will be intimidation tactics to stop us, even as adults, from confessing to the hope and giving a reason for the hope to which we have in Christ Jesus. I'm going to hope for the first but I'm going to steal and resolve in my soul to get ready for the second. Of course, Jesus is amazingly absent from these verses, but only in his name and his physical presence. Because the whole thing is about Jesus. Everything. Look, it's all about Jesus, just like it is for us every day. It's always about him. Am I going to trust him and obey him? Or am I going to do something different? And why do I want to do something different? Why do I think that will bring me more happiness and contentment than obeying? And at the expense of being too dramatic, I would point to the church in Germany in 1930. They faced similar intimidation tactics 
and it got worse. But they mostly capitulated and then suddenly found themselves being the victims of the Nazis. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer in particular is a voice that is very instructive to us today. And if you've not read any of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words, I would encourage you to do so. Especially if you face hostile environments at home or other places to your faith in Christ. But I know some of you believe in Christ, you put your faith in Him, you love Him, you want to obey Him, but you're like the only person in your house that wants to do that. And that's hard. And I'm sorry that it's hard. I really am. I've never had that experience that I was the only person in the house that wanted to follow Jesus. I have no idea what that's really like. I know what it's like to be ridiculed for your faith, but I don't know what it's like to live in a house where I'm ridiculed of my faith. So what am I going to say to you if that's your situation? I wasn't, I didn't go through it. I would point to this chapter, especially the verses that we didn't talk about that are coming up next, and especially the end of the chapter. When Jesus says to this blind man, having been through this brutal intimidation by the Sanhedrin and then finally cast out because he was the one who saw and they were blind. And Jesus went to the man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That's my answer. You live in a house where you're the only one that believes? Go to your bedroom, close the door, and worship Jesus. And if some of those worship sounds seep through the door and the walls, okay. Worship Jesus and trust Him. That's my answer. In the face of hostility, worship Jesus and trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word this morning. Hallelujah. Praise Your name forever and ever and ever that You are the one who opened our spiritual eyes so that we could see you as our Lord and Savior, confess you, worship you, and enjoy you, and enjoy the gift of knowing you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that as we go forth from this day, that our hearts would be strengthened and emboldened to confess you in the face of opposition as well as in the face of encouragement, and that we would put our trust in nothing but your blood and righteousness. And let everything that comes from our mouth be backed up and emanated with the yes and amen. In Jesus' name, amen.